Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which which transcends all understanding, will guard, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Awesome work, Nora. Let's pray before we uh, jump into that text. Uh, Father, we, <clears throat> at least I want peace that surpasses understanding. And so would you open up what Paul is saying to us so that we would be a people of peace? Uh, do that, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In 2008, I bought my first house, and it was the house you would expect a single person without a ton of money about to be married to buy, which is, it required a lot of work. There was a lot to paint, there was a lot to scrape, um, they, there were these beautiful hardwood floors that they put carpet on for some reason, and they like used about 10 times as much glue as you needed uh, to, to do, and so I had to, I had to scrape all the glue up, pull up the staples, and I just went to work on this house, making it a home. And there's one day in particular I had to uh, um, borrow my parents' truck to drive it back and forth um, several times to, to Lowe's. The reason I had to go back, several times back and forth to Lowe's, any of you who, have, who live with a male will know, we don't take lists to, to places. So we have to, that's, we just go more times than having a list. Uh, and so I had to go several times. It's it like the third time I'm, I'm headed to Lowe's to get the next round of probably chemicals to put on my uh, floor that have t certainly took a number of years off my life. But I'm, I'm headed to Lowe's, driving my parents' car, and it just locks up and starts shutting down. And I have to, like, just, like, force it over to the side of the road. And I'm just, I'm freaking out. I'm thinking, did I just break my parents' truck? I can barely afford a house. How am I going to pay for this car? And, like, I'm in the middle of the interstate. What happened? What's wrong with it? And uh, I looked at the, the gas gauge, and there was, there was no gas in the car. And it turns out if there's no gas in a car, it doesn't, it doesn't go anywhere. It actually shuts down. And so I'm driving along the interstate, and that, it, was, it was very startling to, like, you're just driving. I, I, my, my attention was fully on the house, how to do projects, how to f what I needed to finish that day. And out of nowhere, the wheel just locks up and shocks me. All because I wasn't paying attention to something very simple, the gas gauge. And I feel like we are maybe in a moment like that in our own cultural reality, which is the last year sort of felt like that to me. Which is just kind of, we were going about life, a pandemic hits, and it's like, oh, there's nothing's working anymore. Like the, everything's shutting down, right? Everyone's angry all the time. And why, why, are, we, why are you yelling at me, right? Like it's, it's just what's happening in the world around us. And if you were to, to dig into some of, of what we've been experiencing over the last year, our culture was already greatly increasing in anxiety prior to the pandemic. You disrupt all of our weekly rhythms. You enter in a, a, a medical reality that, that, was, that had a lot of unknowns to it. And the, 
the recipe for anxiety is, is pretty robust. So the, the latest study is, is about 30% of people say they've increased their anxiety through the pandemic. Google searches around the topic of anxiety. Maybe that's just pastors preaching on it that's increased that number. But that, the Google anxiety searches have gone up pretty tremendously. And I feel like this is, we're in a moment of like, okay, what, we're, out of, we're just realizing we're out of gas. The tank is empty. Why? What is it about the way that we are doing life that produces such anxiety in us? And here in Philippians 4, Paul, Paul kind of lays out two ways of living in the world. Way one is, is in verse 6 when he tells this church, do not be anxious about anything. And then he lays out another way with them in verse 7, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So there is the way of anxiety and the way of peace. And I'm not someone who will look at you and say, listen, there's nothing to be anxious about. Just calm down, right? Like, it's it's, it's all okay. I Actually, I don't believe that. Actually, there's a lot you should be anxious about. This is maybe a terrible thing to say, but it's true. Like, there's a lot that can go wrong in the world. There's, like, billions of things that could go wrong in your day just today. It feels like the sermon's getting worse. I'm sorry. <clears throat> There's so much in the world. And that's why, listen, for, for some of you, the right an- answer to your anxiety may actually, like, there, there are actually chemical imbalances that lead to great anxiety in us. So I, I, I very much believe in that. That's not what I'm going to speak to today. Because Paul, Paul actually says there's a way of being in the world that produces a, a peace that surpasses understanding. So Paul offers us a way of living that's an irrational peace in a time of very rational anxiety, there's a lot to be worried about. And I want to embrace this way of irrational peace. And, and the way we're going to kind of dive into this passage is, is to ask three questions. Uh, who is near? Where is my attention? And what am I imitating? First, who is near? Now we, are, uh, we have one week, week left in this series in Philippians on the subject of joy. In the first week... <coughs> How we define joy was that joy is, according to Dr. Alan Shore of UCLA, a psychologist, joy is when someone is glad to be with me, when someone's face lights up to see me. And his point is that joy is a relational experience. And again, this is is through neuroscience. It's not just like he woke up one day and this is what he thought. No, this is based on how our brain responds, how our, our brain lights up with joy. It is in the context of relationship with other people. When we walk into a room and they are glad To see us. So that means who is around us is great, a a hugely determining factor in how we experience joy and peace. Right? If we're around people whose faces are never lighting up, we're probably gonna have a high level of, of anxiety and a low level of peace. And so who is near you? Who's around you? Well, Paul speaks to this in Philippians 4. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. I think this is the third time he said this in this this book. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say it. Rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. So in the middle of this flow, he says, the Lord is at hand. What does that mean? Well, the Lord is probably a reference to Jesus, that the Greek word for Lord 
kurios, is, is typically a word the New Testament writers use to refer to the person of Jesus. So Paul is saying Jesus is at hand. Well, what does it mean that Jesus is at hand? And it can mean either uh, Jesus is going to return soon. And because Jesus is going to return soon, that should reframe our anxiety in this world. You don't need to be anxious because Jesus will return. And there's other passages that teach that. That might be what Paul is saying here. I don't think he's saying quite that because he uses a slightly different word than typical here, which is less the Lord is at hand and more the Lord is near. The more standard translation of this word is near. And I think what Paul is saying is, do not be anxious because Jesus is near to you. He's available to you. He's present to you. So, don't be anxious. Pray to him. Draw him into your life. Speak to him. Thank him. He is present. Jesus is near. So if, if who is near us is going to greatly determine our level of, levels of anxiety and peace and joy, then we would want Jesus near to us. And so Paul then goes into a little bit of a vision of what prayer looks like. Prayer that would reduce anxiety and increase peace and joy. So what does prayer look like that would lead us to not be anxious? And Paul tells us, and there's three qualities to this prayer. The first is, is just tell God what you need. Right, Paul says, don't, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. Just tell God what you need. And it's okay if what you need today is, is a nap. And you just, need, you just need some rest today. And you're worn down. You had a long last couple of days for whatever reason. And you're just like, Lord, I need, I need 20 minutes today for power. That, that's okay. It could be you have a really big project this week. It could be conflict at work. It could be a relationship. It could be, it could be anything. But what weighs on us when it's left undone is what ultimately causes anxiety in us. And Paul seems to invite us into a life where Jesus is present and there's this ongoing dialogue between what I need in life and my request and attention to him. There's no request too low to bring to Jesus. In fact, I would, I would suggest your level of anxiety lowers the lower of requests you're willing to make to Jesus. If you think Jesus is only interested when things go really wrong in your life, he's not going to be present to you for most of your life. But if you're convinced, as I think the New Testament teaches, that God is present to you in, in all things, he's available to you in all things, then you have no problem asking for something as simple as, as enough gas to get home from work if you push it a little too far on the gauge, or, an, or, or some rest, or food later for the day, or for your child's test. To turn. It's, oh, just whatever's weighing on you, present it to the Lord. Jesus is near. Just tell God what you need. You're like, well, it's, but it may be shallow. That's a, t tell him what you need. It's okay. So tell God what you need first. Se secondly, then Paul says thanksgiving. Thank God for what he has done. Right? Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And there is a very clear link between people who, who live in gratitude and who who do not experience anxiety. In other words, the more grateful you are, the less anxiety you experience. The more grateful you are, the more peace 
you experience. And that's both a biblical idea. It's also just a, a basic neuroscience idea. And so in her book, The How of Happiness, Sonia Lubomowski points this out, what gratitude is and why it leads to us being happier, more joyful people. And I love her definition of gratitude because it's a little different than how I've, I've typically thought of gratitude. But here's what she writes. Gratitude is wonder. It is appreciation. It is looking at the bright side of a setback. It is fathoming abundance. It's thanking someone in your life. It's thanking God. It's counting blessings. It is savoring. It is not taking things for granted. I actually really like that idea that gratitude is savoring. Right? It's, it's taking something good that's meaningful to us and not blowing right past it into the next thing, but just sitting in the, in the goodness of what has been given to you. So I want to do that right now. Some of you uh, were with us back in the days of Maranatha when we had to, to tear down and set up everything every week. And we would climb up the stairs and we'd drag all our stuff down the stairs and every week. And we weren't sure if the heat was going to be on or the air conditioning was going to be on. And today it would have been like 80 degrees in there, most likely. Remember those days. Or Trail Ridge, where we sat on really hard chairs. Right now you've got some, you get some cushion, right? It's like maybe you're, a little, you're halfway to a nap at this point, and that's okay. If that's, what, if that's what you need, I said to pray for it. Maybe the Lord's going to bless you in the next 20 minutes with that. But you're sitting in comfortable chairs, a dark, nicely lit room, right? It's like that, that is, we walked into a building that is ours today. And probably for the first few weeks, it was just like, man, we don't, we don't set up and tear down. And this is amazing. This is incredible. And now it's like, that's just normal. And we, like, we, did, you, did we savor it? And so I'm trying, I just want to do that right now. Like right now, the Lord provided this space. Every week we meet in here, it's a reminder of his goodness and his faithfulness to us. We just sit, can we just sit in that and savor that? Rather than, yeah, it's, the chairs are nice. That's great, Tim. Let's go. I, I got lunch. Let's, let's move the sermon along, right? It's this, no, savor what God has given to you. And so a practice I would encourage you into, how to actually practice gratitude in a real way. Sonia uh, Lubomowski actually points out that it's uh, the most effective gratitude practice is actually a weekly practice, not a daily practice. Daily practice can become legalistic and can wear you down. It's like, okay, I got to think of three more things to be grateful for. And it's like, well, one thing I'm not grateful for is that I have to come up with three things that I'm grateful for. So they, she actually found one time a week a list of five things was sort of the, the optimal way to sit in a, a sense of, of gratefulness and savoring of what happened in the last week. So I, I do that each week. That's a good Sabbath practice where I just wake up and I go back through my, my week and I think, how was the Lord present to me this week? What, what, did he, what did he offer me? What did he give? How was he aware? Or how was he near to me? Because how many of us, if I asked you, what has God done in your life? you would like readily have eight or nine memories, experiences, moments. How many of us we, for, we forget? We stop savoring, we blow right through those moments when God is present to us, or we never even noticed he was, he was present to us because we weren't living in a place of presence and savoring and gratitude before the Lord. So don't just tell God what you need, that's really important, but also thank him. When he's available to you, when he's present to you, when he's near to you, when, he's, when he shows up in a way that you asked him to be. Thank God for what he's done. That's second. And then thirdly, prayer that, that leads away from anxiety and towards peace is, is pray for the presence. 
And what I mean is, is the goal of prayer ultimately is not to get God to do things for us or even to, for us to, to do things for him, to thank him. The goal of prayer is to be in the presence of God, to dwell in his person and to be in intimacy with him. And so I want to read an extended quote from, from one of my professors in seminary from his book, Praying with Paul. D.A. Carson writes this about our own prayer lives and how we, how we pray or don't pray in the presence of God. He writes, So much of our religion is packaged to address our felt needs. And these are almost uniformly anchored in our pursuit of happiness and fulfillment without rightly understanding where true happiness and fulfillment lie. God becomes the great being who potentially at least meets our needs, fulfills our aspirations. But we think too little of what he is like, his wisdom and knowledge, power, love, transcendence, mystery and glory. We are not intoxicated by his holiness and love. His thoughts and words capture too little of our imagination, too little of our discourse, too few of our priorities. We are worse than shallow lovers who want the advantages of having a spouse without wanting soul intimacy. Worse, I say, because God is more than any wife, any husband. He is perfect in his love. He's made us for himself, and our goals and joys are rightly found in him. If I were to ask you, just tell me about the holiness of God. How long could you talk for? Or if I was to say to you, tell me about the love of God, how, how long could you, could you speak? Like, how long can you just sit in the presence of God and name and, and experience and know who, who he is? Because what Carson is saying is we have soul intimacy available to us with the creator of the universe. And you want to talk about a, an anxiety healing experience when you sit across from the creator of the universe and experience intimacy with him. And I want to be careful, right, because the, the Psalms also can, can, uh, or can contain a lot of prayers where people want to experience intimacy with God, and they can. There are seasons of dryness and wilderness, and that's okay. That's normal. And yet our pursuit in prayer ultimately is not, is not just to have things happen in our lives that we want. It's not to, to tell God thank you for things he's done. It's just to be present with him, just to be with him, to be near to him. And the nearness to him is ultimately what, what creates peace that is irrational in a world that should fill us with anxiety. As I said, there's so much to fear in this world. But if you're in, pre- if you're in communion with the creator of it all, it totally changes the way we view the world. Or think of it like this. When I, when I was in Indiana, um, same place where I ran out of gas, uh, we had a couple at the church that had five dogs. Four of them were pit bulls. One was a red tick hound. So they were all huge, huge dogs, very aggressive dogs. These dogs were so crazy. They actually, they had a big backyard. Actually, in the backyard, they dug a cave, like, into the yard where all five dogs could go. Four pit bulls and a, like, 170-pound red tick hound. Like, they built a house as a cave in their backyard. That's what these dogs are like. So I love, we loved hanging out with them. Uh, but one day, Brent, uh, he actually shot himself in the foot. Uh, not figuratively, he literally shot himself in the foot. So he, he couldn't play with his dogs anymore, and that's important. So I asked him, you know, how, how can I help you? How can I serve you? And he's like, just come over and play with my dogs for a little bit. I was like, cool. So I'd go over and I would do that. And 
Listen, this is like if you've got, you know, you've got a little chihuahua at home, this is not what that's like, all right? They would play aggressively. It was tough. There'd be moments when the dogs would be playing with me, and I'm like, I, are, you, are you murdering me right now? Like, was, are you going to drag me into your cave? Like, what are we, like, what are we, is, are we and I'd get, you'd get nervous because they'd be biting on your arms, like, in a controlled way. It's like, this is, this is way too much. And if, when Brent was there with me, and he, you know, he sensed my discomfort of what was happening, he would snap his finger or say something, and the dogs would would calm down. So whenever Brent was with me and the dogs, I was good. Because I knew Brent would put an end to my murder. <laughs> now when Brent was not in the room, it was a very different experience, right? Like I would tell them to calm down. They're like, we don't, we don't know who you are. Like we're gonna, this is how we're gonna play. Like that's they just they would not respond to my voice, but they responded to Brent's voice. So likewise, if if you are if you're navigating your own life, with soul intimacy with the creator of the universe, you have far more than I had with some dog owner snapping his fingers to get pit bulls to calm down. You have someone who understands and knows the intricacies of the suffering, the experience you're walking through, and he's available to you through it. So what do you have to fear if the creator of the universe, even in great pain and suffering moments, what do you have to fear if you're present to the one who made you and made this world? The Lord Jesus is near, Paul says. So do not be anxious about anything. So first, who is near? Second, where is my attention? So that's where Paul starts, with the nearness, presence, availability of Jesus in relationship. But secondly, he goes to what we pay attention to. Verse 8, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence... If there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. That what you pay attention to is going to have a huge effect on whether or not you're filled with anxiety or filled with peace. And we live in a, a and this has always been the case, but people know they can get your attention by increasing your fear. Just period. That's, that, that works. We get afraid, we give attention. And so Paul is asking us to reflect on what are we paying attention to. And he gives you a lot of categories that are, are worth thinking on at length. We should pay attention to what is true, what is honorable, what is just, what is pure, what is lovely, what is commendable. Anything that's excellent, think about these things. So what are you thinking about? And for us, it's not just like, I think what I grew up, like the church teaching me, which is, hey, there's really bad things out there, be careful. And I, listen, I think that's true, and I'll talk about that in a second. But I think for us, the bigger problem is the sheer amount of things coming at us. So right now, Netflix has 2.2 million hours of streamable content for you, or minutes, maybe it's minutes. Whatever it is, it comes out to four years of your life. If you spend the next four years of your life, you will get through the entire Netflix catalog, assuming they don't make anything else that's new. And I would not make that assumption. All right, so that's just Netflix, you got four years. That doesn't include Amazon Prime, that doesn't include Hulu, that doesn't include Apple TV, that doesn't include the podcast your friend just recommended to you, that doesn't include the books you want to read, that doesn't include the movies you want. Listen, I, I'm increasing your anxiety, I apologize, I repent, all right? There is so much coming at you. So, I don't know where I read this originally, but the question for us today is not, like, what's bad and what's good and what do I listen to? It's, it's actually, everything that can be said has already been said. So I need to decide, what do I not listen to? How do I filter out what's not, what's not worth listening 
to. And listen, Paul gives a lot of categories here. I want to focus on three. The first thing we should ask with anything that has our attention is, is this true? Is this true? And this has always been uh, true, but it, it feels uniquely poignant in our own moment that today it feels like we all sort of have narratives and assumptions we live into, and then we go looking for truth to confirm those narratives rather than going to look for truth to build our realities around. And a really good example of this, to me at least, has been the last year of the, the pandemic, trying to figure out how to respond to a new disease. And a lot of what's happened is a narrative gets set in place, and if there's a contradictory fact, those voices tend to be shut down or ignored or not listened to or mocked in, in, in the public square instead of just airing it all out to say what's true, what holds up, what doesn't. Instead of an open conversation pursuing truth, it feels like there have been many parallel tracks of people who've already determined what the end result is, and they're finding ways to get there instead. The truth, often, we're more interested in truth that will serve our agenda than we are with the truth that might change our agenda. And so Hannah Anderson, in her book, All That's Good, writes, communities are coming apart at the seams, not simply because we can't agree on what is good and valuable, but because we can't agree on what is true anymore. And slowly but surely, our separately constructed realities cut us off from each other and lead us to solitude. Surrounded by a mass of people, we feel unloved and misunderstood for the simple fact that we've created millions of worlds with a population of one. Paul actually speaks to this earlier when he lays out what, what it looks like to pursue truth. Philippians 1 Verses 9 and 10, he says, It's my prayer. This is what I'm praying for you as a church. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more and more with knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. This is very similar language to Philippians 4. And so Paul's vision is that, first of all, a church community that's deeply embedded in, with love for one another. Right? So we're full of joy because we love one another. And that's our, our first commitment is to that. And then when you have that, when you have a community that actually loves one another, you can discern what's true and not. Because people full of joy typically don't fall for lies. Typically don't fall for things that are not true. So the vision is, actually truth is a communal process, a communal pursuit where in joy and love as we pursue Jesus together, we discover and come upon and leads to what is true. And ultimately to believe something that is not true will create Anxiety, because you're, you're walking in a reality that's not actual reality. Whereas truth, while it can at times hurt and be painful, is reality and can free us from our anxieties or fears. So are you pursuing truth in community? Or are you pursuing truth to serve the conclusion you've already determined? Is this true? That's one thing to ask of the, the intake, of what you're paying attention to. Secondly is, is this honorable? Um, first service I mentioned this. Now, my parents may watch it on video, so I didn't say what I'm going to say now. But uh, I, I felt growing up, like, my parents would not let me watch stuff, and it felt really unfair. 
And I was like, I'm going to name some of those things. Like, well, some of you may think that we shouldn't watch this. So I'm not going to name some of those things. Um, but there were, like, there, were lo- there were a lot of things we weren't allowed to watch um, growing up. And to be clear, I think my parents actually had a really good line of what to watch and what not uh, to watch. That's what I didn't say in the video because I don't want, do not want them to come back and tell me, see, we did a good job as parents. Like, no, this wasn't, we don't need to talk about that. Um, but uh, we, there, it seemed like, like 20 years ago, it was like, don't watch certain things. And I feel like today, I don't, are, do we have any lines anymore as Christians of what we won't watch or take in? I mean, how much violence are we consuming as a culture? How much um, just death, condescension, anger, gratuitous sexuality? All this, it's just like a normal flow into who we are, all of which is, is demeaning of, of human dignity, all of which is... Um, produces anxiety, right? When you see violence, it produces anxiety. Listen, I'm not, we're not, this isn't in with an application of, guys, we've bought land out in western Kansas, we're going to be Amish. That's not, that's not where we're going, just to be clear. But it's, I don't, do we have lines anymore? Do we see things as dishonorable? I will not let that into my soul because it dishonors the human person or the world God has made. And I don't, listen, I'm not going to try to draw those lines for you. I'm just, do you have lines? Is there something that if it came on, you would turn it off right away? Or you won't even turn it on because you know letting those things into your heart and life will produce in you a person that is, is anxious and not at peace. As you're watching something, ask, is this honorable? Does this honor the Lord? Could I watch this with Jesus? And listen, I don't, to be clear, I don't think Jesus is a super uptight person who never laughs. Like that's, that's not the vision I want you to get. But like, could you watch the, Could you watch something with Jesus and him be like, dude, we got to turn this off, right? Is it honorable? Thirdly, uh, is this lovely? Is it beautiful? Or is it trivial? Uh, though I'll, I'll use, I'm, this is going to offend some of you, and I'm sorry, but uh, when I uh, first started drinking coffee, I didn't really drink coffee. I went to Starbucks, and my drink of choice was a vanilla bean frappuccino. Which is hard. I just want to laugh at myself right now. Um, and if you like that, that's great. But uh, a vanilla bean frappuccino, basically what it is, it's ice, it's milk, it's vanilla bean, and it's this disgusting substance that you would never put into your body if you knew what it was. Because it's just this weird gum-like stuff to basically hold the vanilla bean, milk, and ice together to make it an appearance like it's an actual substance that you should put into your body. Um, so that, that's what I started with because it was full of sugar, it was delicious, it was good. But it, ultimately, that's a very trivial drink. Over time, I've grown to, I prefer pour-overs that are black, and if you really want to blow uh, my mind, you get a pastry that has, a no- that has notes in its flavor that match the coffee flavor, right? So if, if a coffee flavor has a, nut, a, you know, a nut-like flavor, you get a, like an almond-type scone, and you put those things together, and you take a little bite of, co- a little bite of scone, a little drink of coffee, and it's just, it's just, it puts that vanilla bean frappuccino to shame. And, and how much of us, like, we have, we have so much, again, so much available to us that ultimately is trivial. Again, it's like, if, if you're like, Frappuccino is your beauty, that's okay, right? You do you, that's fine. Um, but but we, ha- we often, so often give ourselves to trivial things that are not beautiful and do not lift our human spirit. So again, Hannah Anderson in her book, All That's Good, she writes, if we spend our days sharing trivialities, life will be trivial. If we spend our days focused on what we fear, life will be filled with anxiety. If, however, we spend our days talking about good, worthy, glorious things, there is the strong likelihood that our lives will be filled with good, worthy, glorious things. That's worth asking. What, whether it's a podcast, whether it's 
music, whether it's a movie, a show, to ask, does this lift my human spirit? And listen, there are things I would say yes to that other people might view as trivial. But actually, like, that lifts my soul in a unique, a unique way. Is it beautiful? So one tool we've offered, and we, we had a bunch run out for a service, so I don't, I'm, look around if there's not one by your seat, but around our seats we have um, basically a, a social media playbook tool, and I actually think this is, this can work beyond social media, um, but I'd encourage you to, to take this home and do this. This was uh, from an organization called Start, uh, someone in our Leewood campus helped begin this, and the, the basic idea is, listen, media, movies, all that, it's out in the world, so our response is not to be Amish. But our response is to ask, what do we value? What do we care about? What lifts our, right? What's true, what's beautiful, what's good? And then to design lives that allow things in, but we've already made the choice of what comes in and what doesn't. And I think they have some really helpful questions to think through as you think about your social media presence, your, what you're taking in, what you're paying attention to. And I would say, even if you don't take one of these home to, to meditate on, you know, I, I use the example of Chicago sports talk all the time because it's less... It's less intense than political examples, but I, I think it, it crossover, it works. When I got to Chicago and listened to Chicago Sports Talk Radio, those guys were always angry, always anxious. There's always enemies. There's always problems. And I was just like, I can't listen to you guys anymore. So I can't do I love sports, and you're ruining it for me. Like, it's supposed to be fun, and you guys are always angry. And I, I stopped, and my life got so much better. And I could almost say for all of us, and I would include myself on this, there are voices you're listening to right now. If you stop listening to them, you'd be a more peaceful person. So stop. Where are you paying attention? And then thirdly, what am I imitating? Paul gets to the end of this passage, and he says, basically, be like me. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, in our own kind of Midwestern moment, that's like, it's difficult for someone to say, be like me. We don't, we don't like that. It sounds um, self-aggrandizing. But that's not what Paul is. I mean, one, remember Paul's context. He's in prison facing execution, and he's writing a letter on joy. So it's like, actually, we probably should do what he's doing. He's a person of peace in a moment of incredible anxiety. And also, this is a key, this is a key part of discipleship. Ultimately, we are all being discipled by some person or someone whose rhythms of life, whose vision of the world is we're captivated by and we're watching and we're listening. And what I would encourage you to do is, is, is to ask yourself, who has a rational peace? Who's someone that's just like, man, they just got it together and they shouldn't? And go spend time with that person. If you need to know who they are, I'm happy to let you know who some of them are who are part of this community. We have a lot of people like that here. We also have a video of a couple of those people um, who do that as well. And so we want you to watch this because this we feel like is worth imitating. In 2012, our eight-month-old Isaac developed an ear infection and so they took blood work and the doctor was like, we are pretty confident he has leukemia. You need to get to Children's Mercy downtown as fast as you can. Isaac had infantile acute lymphoblastic leukemia. Only 200 kids or so born in the United States each year with this. I always had some weird confidence that wasn't from me. It was not necessarily confidence that he would be okay or that we would be okay. It was a peace that surpasses all understanding. We knew that God was good and we know that he has our best interests at heart. And the tricky thing is that sometimes that's just not what we think it should be. The staff at Children's Mercy were amazing. Like we are friends with them now. The freedom of mind to say, you know what, we're gonna be stuck here for the next two years. 
let's get to know these people. Instead of staying in our room, let's go into the hallway and ask them questions and see how their day is going. We found little moments of, of joy with them. He had like a logo drawn up and it was Isaac's face, but it said joy beats cancer. Joy beats cancer was reminding ourselves that sometimes joy is a choice. You have to choose to find things to be joyful or even happy about. It's an anchoring of, but my hope is in Jesus. And Jesus is providing for me. Like the Lord is providing for me in this time and I just need to anchor to Him. We work so hard on those patterns of spending time with the Lord that now it's like, oh, okay, well this big fearful thing is happening in the world, but Jesus is still here. I can still anchor myself to that rock Instead of this rock of fear and anxiety, I'm gonna to anchor to Jesus over here. So now we have four kids. Isaac is now nine, almost 10. Isaac is as healthy as any other almost 10 year old boy. I mean, he's very, very active. We do choose to do stuff together as a family. I think some of that is because, you know, when you almost lose some of that, you really want to be together. While we prayed for healing from the beginning, we did not expect it, and we did not think that we were owed it. That belief that God was good regardless of the outcome, that, that carried us. Because we know that Isaac's story turned out as good as this story possibly can. I'd often say the climate was good, but the weather was terrible. As in, it was a hard day, but he's getting better. We had several days where it was just like, hey, we're glad he's even here. This in itself is a miracle that he's here. If you're a person of anxiety, the best thing you can do is find people with a rational peace. And even one of the gifts I think I have as a pastor is I get to, I get to experience those people because for whatever reason, that you know, just, just through the, the, the realities of life. And I've, just, I've always been drawn to people who have suffered immensely um, and yet have this peace attached to their existence. Tyler and Amy are, are certainly people like that. My church in Chicago... Friends of ours, Frank and Betsy, they lost their daughter at two days old, Lydia, um, to an infection. And they lived such lives of beautiful peace and trust in Jesus through incredible suffering and pain. For many of us, we remember the days of Maranatha where, when Mary Kay would walk um, her husband Dana in the later stages of Alzheimer's and they would make coffee um, for us. And watching Mary Kay faithfully serve her husband as he deteriorated it's beautiful. People who are anchored to Jesus find this place of irrational peace. So find those people. They have a podcast. Listen to that podcast. Get time with them. Listen to them. Not because we, uh, we imitate people just to be like them, but because they're, as Amy said, anchored to Jesus. And that's what we all want to be, is to be anchored to Jesus, creator of the universe, who is here now, present, to turn your anxieties over to him, because he's listening. Let's pray.
Father, we do call attention to your presence in this place, Father, Son, and Spirit. A God who, who loved us so deeply, you gave us your Son. A Son who loved us so deeply, his body was broken and blood was shed to, to save us. And a Spirit who loves us so deeply, he indwells us now to, to lead us toward a life of irrational peace. And so I pray for us in this room, God, that we would, we would find the places and people of peace anchored to Jesus, and we would build our lives around their presence, their practices, their ways, and a culture which encourages us into trivialities, into untruths, into, into violence, into the presence of other things. God, we would, would resist and disobey that world and focus our attention and presence onto you, who has made this world and loves us and has given your son for it. So God, now we gather around the table of Jesus, who invites us to this place, knows our insufficiencies, knows our weaknesses, knows we have a lot to be afraid of, and he, he reminds us, in this world, while we will have tribulation, he has overcome this world, and he overcame it through his cross, so as we come to his table now, God, fill us with faith and a peace that surpasses all understanding. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.